So we're in the book of Hebrews tonight, going through the book of Hebrews, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Tonight we're going to find ourselves in chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 5 through 9. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, in a study I'm calling You Rule, Man. And you'll see why as we work through this text. So let's pray and let's uh, see what the Lord has for us. Father, thanks so much for the chance to gather together as a church and study your word. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of having all of your word, the complete revelation of God, and that we can study it, Lord. We can cross-reference it. We can put things together to understand your plan, Lord, and your purpose in this world, and also in our life, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, that you would grow us through this book and encourage us in our walk. Lord, we thank you that you're mindful of us, Lord, that you care about us, and that you think about us, Lord. You have a perfect plan for each one of our lives. And I pray, Lord, that we would know that plan tonight, Lord, as as we leave this place, and that we'd be excited about walking in the good works that you have foreordained for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've all been guilty of distracted driving, right? Texting, eating, right? Um you know, adjusting radio, whatever it might be, we've all been guilty of it. But based on the stats that the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, so it must be a disease, based on their stats, they tell us that we need to stay focused on the road ahead. Here's what the CDC says. They said each day in the United States, over eight people are killed and 1,161 injured and crashes that are reported to involve a distracted driver. Wow. And so, it's serious stuff, right? Distracted driving is dangerous. But you know what? So is distracted Christian living. And the Hebrew Christians were fallen guilty of that. They were all guilty of it. You see, they were taking their eyes off Jesus, and they were starting to look back at Judaism. Because of persecution from their Jewish relatives, because of apathy, They were starting to say, hey, you know what? I want some rest. I'm going to set aside my faith. I'm going to go back to Judaism, and I'm going to have peace. And the writer of Hebrews got word of it and says, hey, guys, you know what? You're living distractively right now. You need to focus on Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith. So this is really the focus of the book. Stay focused on Jesus. Press forward. It's a one-way road that we're on looking to Jesus. Now, the writer helps us to stay focused, right? Sometimes, you know, as you're distracted when you're driving, right, you, you miss a pole or something, you think, okay, I need, I need to pay attention. Well, the writer kind of gives us warnings like that throughout this book. But also, he puts before us Jesus. He contrasts Jesus with the good things of Judaism. You see, the things that the writer is pulling out about Judaism aren't bad things. I mean, they're good things. I mean, they're things that God had established in the Old Testament, But he shows, hey, Jesus is greater than those good things. And that's what he applies here in this chapter. In chapter 1, we started looking at Jesus being greater than the angels. And he said, hey guys, you want to compare? Let's compare. Let's talk about the angels. Angels had a very high place in in Judaism. He said, let's compare Jesus to the angels. And we looked at chapter 1 that Jesus is God. Therefore, he is greater than the angels. Now in chapter 2... He's going to look at the other side of the coin. He's going to say that Jesus is also fully man. And even in his humanity, he's greater than the angels. 
You see, Jesus is amazing. Jesus was both fully God and fully man. 100% God and 100% man. And as we'll see, even Jesus in his humanity is greater than these angels. Now, the question arose in the mind of the Old Testament student. They said, wait a second. Doesn't Psalm 8 say that man was made lower than the angels? And if man was made lower than the angels, how could Jesus, if he became a man and remains the God-man, be greater than the angels? And so the writer takes this, and he, in a masterful way, he shows that Jesus and his humanity is greater than the angels. And here's how we're going to see that he does this. First, we're going to see that man and not angels were given the right to rule. And second, we see that God became a man to restore mankind to their destiny. It is your destiny, right? As, as Darth Vader would say. That was my alternate, alternate title, but I didn't think I'd be able to do the, 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 the Vader voice. But it, it kind of worked out there as I got some coffee in me tonight, right? So, so first now in verses 5 to 8, we see that man and not angels were given the right to rule. Look at verse 5. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. And so the writer here is focusing on God's purpose and plan for the angels in this world to come. Now the world to come is a reference to the literal thousand year kingdom of God that Jesus will establish on this earth at his second coming. We'll look at it in a little bit. But Revelation 20 says that Jesus is going to come back a second time, we believe, with his church. And the Bible says that he sets up his thousand-year kingdom on his earth. And this is what the writer is talking about. The Lord is going to reign from Zion in righteousness and truth over the entire earth. Now, the fact that the writer is referring to the literal thousand-year kingdom is seen in the phrase, the world to come. Now, I'm told that this phrase in Greek is a word... Okonomia, which, is, which actually means an inhabited world that has an administrative order. And um, from this Greek word, we get our word dispensation, kind of another big word. You're like, what does that mean? Well, by God, a guy by the name of W. Graham Scroge says this concerning this world and this word. Here's what he says. It's a pretty cool quote. He says, the word okonomia bears one significance and means an administration whether of a house, or a property, or a state, or a nation, or as in the present study, the administration of the human race, or any part of it at any given time. Just as the parent would govern his household in different ways, according to um, very necessity, yet for one good end, so God has at different times dealt with man in different ways, according to the necessity of the case, but throughout for one great and grand end. And so here the writer is talking about this world to come. He's saying that in the future there's going to be an inhabited world with a unique administration of God. And the best interpretation that fits this is the millennial kingdom that Jesus is going to establish on this earth. Now notice in reference to this world to come, the writer says, of which we speak. So he's already been talking about this world to come. This is a reference back to chapter 1. To those promises and those passages that we looked at. Remember in verses uh, 4 through, um, was it 15, the writer gave, or, or 4 through 14, excuse me, that the, the writer gave seven Old Testament verses to show that Jesus is, is God. And majority of those verses all have a future reference to the fact that Jesus is going to come back and rule and reign 
on this earth. So he says, hey guys, we've already been talking about this. You already know that Jesus is, is, is the king and, you know, and that he's going to come back. He's going to come back and set up a unique administration on this earth. So after focusing their thoughts on this future kingdom, the writer talks about the roles now of the angels in this kingdom. He says, okay guys, yeah, we all know that the kingdom's going to come. And that is when we're actually going to have peace on this earth. No president is going to bring that peace. Only if Jesus Christ comes back will we have that peace. And so he focuses their, their eyes on these, on these angels. Now, I'm told by the Bible Knowledge Commentary that some actually believe that the angels would actually rule in this kingdom. I'm told that it, it has been claimed that the Dead Sea Scrolls show that the sectarians of, of Qumran believe that the coming age would be marked by the dominion of Michael and his angelic subordinates. And so if, this Hebrews, if these Hebrews brought into this tradition, maybe some of them even believe that the angels would actually rule this kingdom, Michael the archangel and his boys. But the writer here rejects this. He refutes this clearly. He says the angels are not going to rule. They're not going to have this world in subjection to come, but they're going to be servants. They're not going to be rulers, but they're going to be servants. We saw this in chapter 1. He says that the angels of God are going to worship Jesus. And the angels of God are Jesus' spirits and ministers. The word minister there is a servant. And so angels were made to serve God. They were made to worship God. Now the writer goes on and takes us a step further now in verse, in verse 6. He says, but, of, but one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. So now the the writer pulls out another scripture here. Man, this guy's full of scriptures. And he points to Psalm 8 now, verses 4 through 6. Now when you read this psalm, you see that the psalm has in his heading a psalm of David. And so it's clear in the scripture that David wrote this psalm. But we see here that the writer doesn't give the scripture reference, nor does he attribute this psalm to David. But he says, yeah, one testified in a certain place. Now, he didn't say this because he didn't know this. Obviously not. He quotes scripture. He knew the Old Testament. But I believe that he was focusing his audience on not who said it, but what was said. Not who said it, but what was said. You see, throughout this book, the writer wants to focus his attention on the fact that God is speaking. And that God is speaking to them. It was God who said this in the Old Testament. And it was God who was speaking through him at that time. Which is why he doesn't bear his own name of this book. You know, and people who study this book spend hours figuring out why the writer doesn't mention his name. Well, it's clear. He wants you to know that it's not him speaking. It's God speaking through him. So you just need to listen to what he's saying. You know, they, they needed to know that it, it was the Lord that was d- delivering this message. Now, the context of Psalm 8 is a prayer of praise and wonder to God. David looked up at the heavens. He looked up at the night sky and saw the moon and the vastness of the stars in the heaven. And he realized how great the God that he served was. He was in awe of God. He realized that while God was infinite and powerful, he was able to speak the world into existence, yet he was intimate. He was actually involved in his life, blessing him and taking care of him and watching over him. That's what we see in verse 6 as you look at that verse again. He says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? 
So now David's talking to God. Now the term man in the psalm is a reference to mankind in general. He's saying, what's mankind that you are mindful of us? The term son of man is a reference to David himself. David was speaking of himself here. David realized that while mankind in this vast universe is nothing but like a speck of dust, yet God cares for us. He thinks about us. And in his grace, mercy, and kindness, he continues to provide what we need to survive. The sun has never failed to rise, right? The seasons have always come. God has continued to provide because God is gracious. It's his common grace to all mankind. Even better than that, though, God has provided his word for mankind so we can know him, so we can have a relationship with him. And God has provided salvation. God has given us a savior, Jesus Christ. Even in the Old Testament, right after mankind fell in the garden, God established a way that man could be right with him. You know, he established sacrifice. And because God wanted this relationship with man, he was concerned with man. The fact that man would be forgiven, the fact that man would know God, which is the reason why he was created. David says, you have made him a little lower than the angels. And so God's grace and love to us isn't because we're the greatest creature in this universe. You know, we have nothing to brag about. Rather, God's care and concern for us is because of his grace. Now, David said if God had a heavenly organization chart in heaven, it would be the triune God, angels, man, and then other created things. Man was made lower than the angels, a little lower than the angels. Now, wait a second. We're like, wait, hold on. Why is man lower than the angels? Well, this isn't a reference to spirituality, God's love for us, or even our importance. After all, Adam and Eve were made innocent, right? Just as the angels. Man, man was made innocent. They were given a test, a choice, just as the angels were given a test and choice. Many of them fell, which is now they're confined to rebellion as demons. And man now is, is, is in sin because of the fall. So it's not because of spirituality. Nor is it because of love. I mean, man, not angels, were made in the image of God. And the reason why God made man in his image is because in order to have a relationship, you have to be a like, you know, like that person. Remember when Adam was trying to find a wife? God said, hmm, let's try to find Adam a wife here. So, you know, so Adam had all the animals coming. He named them male and female, male and female. And it says there that Adam was not found a helper comparable to him. So he knew none of these animals are like me. Obviously, in order to have a wife, he had to have someone like him. So God created a woman from his side. And he says, well, she's just like me. She's the bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In the same way, in order for man to have a relationship with God, we must be made in the image of God. We have to be a relational person, right? A relational being, a spiritual being. And only man and not, and not angels or animals were made in that image. Now also, as far as importance, it's not because, you know, man is not lower than angels because of importance. Because as we'll see, man was given dominion and rule of this earth. Angels were not. Man is made lower than the angels in that we are physical beings confined to this earth. Well, angels are spiritual beings that can go before God's throne in heaven and worship. The greatest purpose of man and the greatest you know, need of man is to glorify and worship God. And angels can do that. They can go in the very throne room of God before his throne and worship him. Now, Greek scholars point out something interesting concerning this verse here. They point out that while man was made lower than the angels, it's not always going to be like that. This phrase... 
made him a little lower than the angels actually has a time reference in it. Some of you that might have a New American Standard Bible or the English Standard Version, you see in your Bible it translates this verse, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. And so there's actually a time reference in there. You see, while man's creation and place in this universe is currently lower than the angels, we're not always going to have that position. One day, mankind will have a position greater than the angels. You're like, whoa, all right. When will that be? Well, it's not going to be now. It's going to be in that world to come that, that the writer spoke about. It's going to be in the future kingdom age. Do you know that saints will actually rule and reign with Jesus on this earth? We are given that privilege. Here's a couple passages um, that, that you can write down in sight. Obviously, I don't expect you to turn to all of them, but just listen and you, you, you can write these down and look them up later. Revelation 20, 1 through 5 talks about Jesus' second coming in the kingdom. And here's what it says. It says, Now I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the question is, who are the they in this verse? They are said to have judgment committed to them. And they are actually said to live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Well, the they are saints. The they are believers in Jesus Christ. We know this because of two other passages in Revelation. It kind of sets it up for us before we get there. Listen to what Jesus told the church of Laodicea. He was calling them to repent. And here's what he told them. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so here, Jesus is talking to the church. He says, hey guys, if you overcome, if you believe in me and follow me, you're going to rule and reign with me on my throne. Revelation 5, 9-10. This is actually a future reference to you and I. We're going to be singers in heaven. We can't sing now, but, well, most of you can, right? Not me, I, I say that's myself, but... But one day we will sing, and it's going to be a beautiful song because it talks about our redemption and our future reign. Listen to what we're going to say. Revelation 5. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And here it is. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. That's us in the future. We're going to be before the throne of God after the rapture. And we're going to be singing about Jesus' redemption for us. And then we're going to say, hey, it gets even better. Because we're going to come back with Jesus at the second coming. And we're going to reign with him on this earth. We're going to receive authority to be able to judge and to rule. One more passage. Do you know actually we're actually going to judge angels, the Bible says? 
The church of Corinth had some problems. Believers were suing other believers. They were taken to court with one another. And they weren't handling their own problems as believers and just choosing to, to, to lay down their rights and love one another and go to the scriptures. But they were going to the courts. And Paul wrote to them and rebuked them. And this is what Paul said. Paul said, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you, not, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life. And so Paul writing to the church said, Hey guys, come on. You guys need to take some responsibility and go to the word and judge his own matters because your responsibility in the future is to rule and reign with Christ. You're going to judge the world. You're even going to judge angels. So this was pretty amazing. And so angels weren't given this authority. This world to come is not going to be in subjection to angels, but this world to come was given the right to be in subjection to Christ and to redeem saints. So the question is, what gives man the right to rule over creation? Well, David tells us in the rest of the psalm. Look at the rest of verse 7 of Hebrews. Now we're, now, now we're back in Hebrews, by the way, chapter 2. He says, You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. You see, so while man was made lower than the angels with flesh and blood... They were given a crown of glory and honor. The crown of glory and honor is a reference to man's kingship and dominion that was given to man by God at creation. At creation, God established mankind over the works of his hands. We all know the passage in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And then he says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so in reference to mankind's dominion, God is referring to creation as what man was made to rule over. And so after God made Adam and Eve, he said, hey guys, I'm giving you dominion over this earth. I want you to subdue it. That's a reference to man's kingship. They were given this responsibility. And this is exactly what David had in mind when he wrote the psalm. When he talked about all things were put in subjection under him. So people say, well, what is he talking about? All things subjection under him. Well, he's talking about creation. Because if you read that psalm right after the verse that the writer quotes... David says, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, every beast of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. And so David says, yeah, God has given man the authority to rule over this earth, over his creation. So we see that God made man with this responsibility. Now verse 8, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. So here's a question. Is this verse referring to mankind or is it referring to Jesus? 
Well, Paul did use this verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 27 to apply to Jesus. He applied this verse to Jesus in the fact that we don't yet see Jesus ruling and reigning, but he will one day rule and reign. But the context of this psalm and also of this passage, we know that the writer is talking about mankind. And if you have a New King James Version, you see that the translators felt that this is what he was saying too because the hymns in this passage are all lowercase. And so they, they knew that the writer wasn't talking to about God because he's always capitalized. The hymn in this passage is lowercase. So what the writer is saying is, is that even though God has given man dominion over creation and over this earth, we don't yet see man exercising this dominion. Well, what happened? Well, Genesis 3 is what happened. The fall of man. You see, God made man innocent and he gave man authority. But yet man lost their innocence and their authority when they chose to disobey God and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mankind forfeited their right to rule over this earth. And now mankind is dead in sin. We're in bondage to our own nature. We're dead in sin. Man is not ruling this world right now, but this world has been subdued by Satan. The Bible calls Satan the prince and the power of this world. The Bible says the whole world lies sway under the wicked one. Satan offered the kingdoms to Jesus there on the Mount of Temptation. He says, hey, these kingdoms are mine and I give them to whom I choose. And Jesus didn't say, no, you're lying. No, he didn't argue about that. So this world, Satan has subdued this earth and he holds mankind in bondage to, as we'll see next week, the fear of death and through the flesh. All things that are in the world, John says, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and pride of life, these are not of God, but these are of the world. And the enemy holds mankind captive through this. So now this brings us to our second point in verse 9. We see that God became a man in order to restore mankind to their destiny. Look at verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. You see, in this world now that we see, we don't see it as God intended it from the beginning. We don't see man innocent. We don't see mankind having, you know, dominion over the animals. Just walk around your neighborhood for a while and you'll notice that. You know, whether you go walking or go jogging, animals, they're not subjected to us. There's these birds, man, that like, they hang out on this wire. And if you walk by them, they swoop down at you. And so now every time I walk by them, I go, ah, ah, you know, I clap my hands because they always try to attack me. Think about that next time a pit bull approaches you as you're taking a friendly stroll around your neighborhood. I have dominion over you, dog. It's going to tear you apart. So, or, or, you know, a child in a lion's den. You don't have dominion over yet. We don't see it as God intended it. But rather than seeing it as God intended it, we see sickness, we see suffering, we see death. We see, we see man can't even control themselves. Man can't even rule over their own affairs. But you know what the writer did here? Rather than focus on that, notice what he says, but we see Jesus. But, but we see Jesus. There's a lot that the writer could have said about suffering. He could have launched into a whole uh, apologetic here, you know, and because these believers were suffering. But he says, you know what, guys? Here it is, very simple. Keep your eyes on Jesus. But we see Jesus because Jesus is the hope of mankind in a fallen world. Jesus is the hope of mankind who has lost their, their way. 
Jesus is the hope of mankind who needs redemption, needs restoration. He's the one that we need. So rather than getting sidetracked on the non-essentials, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And as we do, it will encourage us. Because remember what David said? David was able to look up at God. He focused his eyes on God, not on his circumstances around him. And what did he do when he looked at God? He found mercy and grace and realized that God was so good to him. Well, the same thing that will happen to you and I is we take our eyes off our circumstances around us, this world around us, and how fallen it is. Yes, we live in a broken world. But if we take our eyes off that and focus on Jesus, we're going to see God's grace and God's mercy, and it's going to encourage us to worship God. What do we see when we put our eyes on Jesus? Well, first we see that he took a human body. You see, Jesus also was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. You see, God loved us so much that he became one of us. He took a human body through the virgin birth that he can save us. You see, man was, you know, man violated God's law. And because of that, man needs to pay the penalty of God's law, which is death. And the only way that man can be forgiven was man must die for man's sin. But that man must be perfect. So he must be the God man. And the only way that that was possible was God had to become a man. The second person in the Trinity became a man through the virgin birth, 100% God, 100% man, and he lived this life for us. He suffered death, and that's why he lived. He came as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. That's that's how he was announced when he first came on the scene. Behold the Lamb of God. He would die in our place. He was crowned with glory and honor. That is, he died on the cross, but God rose him again from the dead, and now he sits at the right hand of God, waiting to come back to rule and reign. Jesus' whole life, whether it's his incarnation, his life, or his death, his resurrection, our redemption, it's all by the grace of God. Everything from start to finish by the grace of God. The churches believe this throughout history. Salvation always begins by the grace of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. As it moves on man's hearts, we're saved by grace, we're sustained by grace. In the end, we'll sing about his redemption by grace. Notice this, that he might taste death for everyone. So this is talking about Jesus' death. Now, scholars at times debate because the word all sometimes doesn't necessarily mean the word all, right? When it says all Israel will be saved, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that every single Jew in the entire world will be saved. Obviously not, but the Jews who are living at that time who believe in Jesus will be saved, right? So they can try to make the argument, but but we know that often the word all does mean all, right? As it's interpreted in context, But this word everyone must mean everyone. There's no way to get around that. Every Greek scholar will tell you that. Jesus tasted death for everyone. Who's that? Everyone. Everyone in the human race. So there's no way of getting around that. You can't tiptoe around that. He tasted death for everyone. Jesus is the universal universal answer to the universal problem of sin. You see, mankind as a whole was affected And so God must become a man to taste death for everyone in the human race. And he did that. It's a lot of stuff. So let's sum it up real fast. So here's what the writer is saying. The Hebrews were not to think that Jesus was inferior to the angels because God became a man. You see, but while man was lower than the angels for a time, to man was given the right to rule over the kingdom. And you know what? Jesus became a man. Therefore, He has the right to rule over the kingdom. Right? 
he's the God man. He's the king. And because he became a man, he now has the right to rule on the kingdom of David. So can't use that argument. Not only that, but angels can never accomplish man's redemption. Right? Jesus didn't become an angel to save our sins. He didn't die for angels. But he had to become a man that he could taste death for everyone. No angel can accomplish that work. So no angel could compare to his person. And no angel could compare to his work. The believers here were not to have distracted Christian living. They weren't to take their eyes off Jesus and focus on anything else. But they were to keep their eyes before them on that one-way road. Well, how about you and I? What does the world want us to take our eyes off? Maybe the enemy tempts us and tests us because of the suffering around us. We think, well, man, why is there so much suffering? You know, if God loves us, why is there so much suffering? And you know what? We have the word yet. Just because God has not yet ended suffering doesn't mean that he won't. He will. Just because I haven't ended talking yet doesn't mean I'm not going to stop. I, I can just keep going on and on. I had coffee tonight, so man, I can tear it up. Right? But, but you know, just because God hasn't done anything yet doesn't mean that he's not. He's going to. He's going to send Jesus Christ back and restore mankind in this earth to our destiny. Maybe it's temptation to sin, to turn back and look at the former things like Lot's wife. Remember what she did? She was distracted living. She lingered back. She looked at Sodom, right? And what happened to her? She was turned into a pillar of salt. Jesus said, hey, no man who follows me can look back at the plow, man, but you you need to put your hand at the plow and press forward. So Jesus says, hey, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me daily. Keep your eyes on him and not on the things around you, and you'll be driven to prayer and to praise. Amen?